Inspiring stories, practical applications. Doing ministry well. If you found this podcast valuable and are looking for an easy way to support us, you can help us out by claiming your free audiobook and one-month free trial at audibletrial.com slash doingministrywell. That's audibletrial.com slash doingministrywell. All right. Hello, everyone, and thanks for checking into another episode of Doing Ministry Well, another episode coming at you from Clarksville, a dark and dreary day here in Clarksville. I don't think I've seen the sun all day, but we are here with Wade Huffman. Wade, thanks for being on the show. Glad to be here. Wade, Dr. Wade Huffman. Um, I'm trying to think the first time I met you. I think officially your daughter and son-in-law were moving into our neighborhood and uh, we were helping them unpack. And I think that was our first real conversation. Is that true? Probably our first conversation. I actually met you at the Vin House office. Probably. Oh, that's probably right. I had poison ivy. That is true. Fall of... 2015. Right. Yep. Yep. That is true. That was the first meeting. Good memory. Good memory. Well, Wade, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, what I know is doctor, involved in your church, involved in overseas missions, um, former special ops. Just tell us tell us all the stuff. Well, there's a lot. <laughs> um, I've learned that it's hard to make someone's life story into a newspaper article because even the humblest man has a life as complicated as a Tolstoy novel. Hmm. Um, I grew up a Marine Corps kid, uh, got saved in my teens, and um, ended up going to medical school, joining the Army, marrying my lovely wife, not necessarily in that order, and um, the Army brought us here. I was with 5th Special Forces Group, uh, spent a lot of time away from home in uh, dusty, dry places, and found myself staring at the stars going, what the heck am I doing here? And realized that this itch I was trying to scratch really with uh, always volunteering for the uh, least flashy but more dreary missions was that um, I just really have a heart for people. And so that has, that has grown. Um, after leaving the service, I ended up being invited to go on a couple of trips uh, with people, uh, different things. Ended up doing some medical mission work with Samaritan's Purse after a hurricane in Central America. Um, Helped a YWAM friend who had a heart to start a clinic in South Sudan. Uh, First trip with them was in 2005. And um, as that grew and matured, I found that Really, that's the place that I have, the place that just won't go away Hmm. is South Sudan for me. Uh, Started before there was a South Sudan, it actually became its own nation in 2011. And what has grown out of the clinic though is, I do less and less medical work and more and more um, church planter training, pastoral training. There's a big hunger uh, in the area for Jesus. At the same time, there's almost a perfect storm of obstacles, political problems, illiteracy, um, no real infrastructure, roads that stop existing when it rains and you just can't get there hmm. when during certain times of year to certain areas in the country. Um, during that time, also involved with our church and 
our kids and you know doing ministry has more to do with living I think than starting a project huh. although I I have nothing against planning I think planning <laughs> planning is good yeah, it's interesting. We were talking before the interview actually started, and you were talking about like, well, I don't, I don't know if I'm in ministry, but I mean, everything that you just talked about, your work in South Sudan, sounds like ministry to me. It is, um, and yet I can't put a finger on saying, okay, um, you know, I've started a company, I have this many employees, and we're counting noses and baptisms. Because it's difficult. It's mm-hmm. a difficult place. Um, right now, we've gone from a couple of interested people to uh, six active churches in southern Sudan. Um, but people are so displaced because of politics and such that we are ministering to people who are in the capital or in a displaced persons camp because where they live, where they're at home, there's been enough insecurity that they have fled. So to say, well, are there churches? Well, not so many as we would like, but the hope is that all these people that are being ministered to, being equipped, and um, not so much trained as much as trying to uh, light a fire, hmm. uh, that when these when things hopefully do settle down, that they will go back to their homes and be part of a church or start a hmm. church in their in their village. Hmm. There's so many areas of South Sudan where there's no church at all. Um, sorry, brain cramp. No, that's all right. It's all right. Um, right now, your day to day is you are a family practice doctor here in Clarksville. Right. I I work about thirty hours a week uh, to make a living, and um, having cut back from fifty some in order to have more time and flexibility to uh, do things with our church and with the guys in South Sudan. In between trips to South Sudan, trying to get more people involved. Uh, One of the big things we're doing that I, like I said, so far I couldn't tell you, oh, how much fruit there is, but um, is there are several of the dialects and languages of Southern Sudan that are available on audio. Hmm. And a good number of people, I would say greater than 50% of people do have access to a cellular phone. And so for about three bucks, we can get a New Testament on a SD, mini SD card that people can put in their phone and listen to the scripture. And these are guys who, if you went to their home, it's made out of sticks and mud, no running water, no electricity, no vehicle, walk wherever they go, and uh, most people, probably 75% of people, are functionally illiterate, uh, and yet they do have access to technology in that cellular service is available. They buy minutes by the minute, use it to get on Facebook, use it to communicate, and can use it as an MP3 player to listen to the scriptures. We also buy some solar-powered ones for areas where there's no cell service or for folks that don't have access to a cell phone but uh, those little devices are about forty dollars a piece whereas a mini SD card is three dollars three fifty so there's some guys at our church that volunteer their time to download and 
uh, make those SD cards, the devices that we have to buy. Hmm. And that's just, sorry, that's a long aside. No, nope, no, nope, that was good. That was good. Um, you recently, just a couple months ago, got back from South Sudan? Yes, I was there in November. November. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit about that trip. How long were you there? What were you doing? I was there for uh, just about two weeks. We, um, myself and a, um, I'm with the Association of Vineyard Churches, and there is a well-established Association of Vineyard Churches in Kenya that is autonomous and have come to be acquainted with several of the pastors and leaders there who have a heart for the countries around them in East Africa. So the Kenya vineyards are actually doing church planting and reaching out in Uganda and Tanzania and also want to be involved in South Sudan, but it's difficult because of uh, logistics and cost. It's much more expensive to travel there than to other countries where they can go by bus. In South Sudan, the security issues are such that they have to fly in and it's complicated. Uh, but in November, I was able to take one of the missions pastors from Kenya that I've known for a few years uh, named Moses. Uh, and we taught in two different towns to pastors. So the local vineyard pastors there, he, they have a big heart for the kingdom of God. And they always invite pastors of other churches that they know as well as leaders in the community and people that just let them know they're interested. So we usually have a, a big group, 40 or 50 uh, men and women, and we taught for three days in the capital, Juba, and as well as the capital of a state called Zhongli State to the north of the capital called Bor. Hmm. Uh, this coming trip, I'm gonna leave in a month to go back, and the focus is gonna be a large displaced persons camp uh, north of the capital, about 100 miles. Uh, because our pastors, it's like a very large informal network. They know people that know people, and they've said, will you come here? We have guys that want to plant a church, that want to do what you're doing. Come and, come and speak to us. Hmm. So by their invitation, I'll be going with two of the South Sudanese pastors uh, to this place in March. Awesome. So, uh, and one of the things I... I try to do is I've found that I'm not the big vision guy usually I'm more of a, a Mr. Spock to your Captain Kirk and I try to defer to the local leaders vision and say well what do you think we should do next what hmm. where do you think is you know what we should do and I find that that usually works better than me saying hey <laughs> what yeah. about this um, which I think is a a take home for ministry, especially cross cultural ministry, is always beware of that the law of unintended consequences. Hmm. Because you think something's a great idea and you don't maybe are not aware of the cultural ramifications of what you're doing. Or we think, Oh yeah, we're gonna provide you with a, a laptop or something and we are not aware always of the jealousy and the hard feelings for others that this may cause, appearance of playing favorites. It, it's just, it's kind of a minefield that we can blow right through and they'll give us grace. Oh yeah, the foreigners, they don't know. Mm -hmm. But we leave and go home to our nice little houses and uh, the, the guys that we're hoping to equip then we may cut the legs off of them 
if we're not careful hmm. of um, or also do you want to be related to as a foreigner or do you want to be related to as a, as a man as a father um, the ladies if uh, a foreign lady dressed in jeans and she's wearing her makeup and her jewelry that she would wear in a casual environment in the States and wouldn't, wouldn't raise an eyebrow uh, amongst native tribal people where you never see a woman wearing pants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody has enough money for a wedding band, much less diamond earrings. Uh, if we want people to relate to us as people, as, as a man, as a woman, as a wife, as a mom, then it just is helpful to be aware of those things that set you apart and make you odd hmm. not that we're going to play act and try to pretend we're locals but to be to just not stand out in a way of well you know you can always spot the americans because they're wearing a you know a boston red sox t-shirt or i don't know a fancy watch and you know we're it's it's small things that are helpful i think and of course you can't you can't not do the big things yeah, no, I appreciate your awareness of that. We ran into this when we went and uh, I think you were speaking at a, a house of prayer in Kentucky and uh, I think I was wearing gym shorts. It just it was due to the area and wasn't quite aware that gym shorts weren't going to fly at this, this house of prayer. And well, I got it was an old-fashioned kind of country church. Flip-flops and gym shorts were probably the, as odd as if I'd worn a hat made out of bananas right right um, yep but uh in in my previous context in in hawaii where i re- most recently came from you know that was that was the normal wear so i just it's it's good that you're aware of that and help me be aware of this is an issue <laughs> so just that cultural sensitivity and it happens everywhere you go and it's it's not because of that we're kowtowing to legalism as much as uh, you know, there. If you were a, a Samoan and you got a tattoo on your face, you may draw stares here in Walmart. Well, maybe not so much anymore. <laughs> but what, but us wearing our comfortable clothes or things that we don't think twice about might be as as stand out as as having a tattoo on your face to our hosts, and they'll and they'll give you grace for it because they know you don't know. But yet it creates a, an invisible barrier hmm. of, well, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's so intangible that it's hard. Um, for me, uh, you know, a high moment or a high point when, I, when you go back is that guys don't, don't no longer feel like they have to uh, host you like a visiting dignitary. Hmm. They say, glad you're here. I knew you'd come back. Let's go get get busy. They don't say those literal words. Um, knowing that, no, I'm going to be all right. We're going to eat your food. We're going to sleep in your area uh, on a, you know, on the ground, on a pad. And not, it's not going to, they don't have to put me up in a hotel anymore. They, they didn't believe me at first. And, <laughs> you know, it's, I feel like that's a part of relationship and trust to say, Oh, okay. Well, you're you're not so different than us. Let's hmm. let's go do it. Hmm. That's good. Can you just fill our listeners in on? Since we're going to be talking about South Sudan a little bit, just about the context 
of that country, fairly new country, 2011. I think that context will help us understand the rest of this conversation. It's important to realize that the U.S. media, because we have such short attention spans, are forced <laughs> to make everything as simple as possible so it'll fit into a 10-second soundbite. Um, in the past, they talked about, oh, the, the Muslim North and the Christian South, which is a gross misrepresentation. Um, the South isn't really a Christian area, but that's separate. Then now that they have separated, there are multiple tribes in South Sudan, approximately 50, uh, but there's two or three largest tribes, and the leadership of the majority or largest tribe, the Dinka, they're not the majority, they're about 2 million people out of 12 million people. And the second largest tribe is the Nuer, that are not as many as the Dinka, but also maybe a million. So you realize that 75% of the people are, are not of these two main or two majority tribes. So to divide it or call it a civil war even implies that there's two ideologically different sides that have organized and are duking it out. But really it's more of a personal grudge match against the, between the two leaders who have been rivals since the 90s. Hmm. And unfortunately, people generally will divide along tribal loyalties, even when ideologically both leaders are saying the same thing. Hmm. And what has happened recently is that um, members of the army that were one tribe got into an argument one night, and it, again, why is depends on who you ask, and ended up in a shootout. But then what ended up happening was it steamrolled and bands of Dinka, not soldiers, but just Dinka militia armed people went out and targeted people of the other tribe in the capital. People of the other tribe, the Nuer, did the same. So there was this escalation of violence, which really is at a standstill. The problem is the government is basically non-functional. So there's rampant inflation, the currency's uh, lost value, people are hungry. People that are afraid, since there's no law and order, there's bands of bandits uh, that will just stop you on the road and take your stuff. Uh, and so people are afraid and they didn't plant their crops at the right time, which means in this country that you have no food once dry season comes mm -hmm. if you weren't able to plant at the right time. So over a million people out of a population of 12 million are displaced and in camps and the, the government is basically not functional or doing anything about it. So it's at kind of a standstill, which is very awkward because it's not that people are getting killed in the streets, but rather people are afraid to go home and afraid to start anything. They're afraid to start a new business because they have no assurance that there's laws that'll be followed and somebody won't just come and take it. Mm. Um, they're afraid to build a school in their village because they're afraid that, well, why would I build a school Bandits will just come and take all the books and destroy it because mm -hmm. these sorts of things have happened. So uh, it's not gross, whole-hearted anarchy, but there is enough tension that things are kind of at a standstill. And so meanwhile, people are hungry and they are desperate. The enthusiasm of 2011 that, well, once we're separate from the North and we have our own country, then everything will get better and everything will be great, has kind of given way to a despair that, uh, is logical and hard to penetrate. Hmm. 
um, some of our breakfasts that we've had together, which I've, I've really enjoyed. We always have enthralling conversations. We've kind of tackled the, uh, the topic of poverty, which is a huge, huge, huge topic. And um, you're saying that a lot of the poverty that's happening in South Sudan is, uh, what I'm hearing you say, correct me if I'm wrong, is a lot of it is due to lack of government protection. They're not, yes. the government isn't really doing their job. In a way, it's self-inflicted. I think most famines in Africa are caused by politics, not by drought. Um, Unpack that a little bit. What is that? Well, think of the famous drought and famine in Ethiopia in the 80s, uh, most of the people that died in that uh, period of time were political pawns of the Marxist, gov Marxist government that didn't allow foreign aid to come into the country. Hmm. They said, well, just drop it off here. We'll take care of it, which the UN and the World Food Program don't like to do because they know that people are corrupt and things get sold and they never reach the intended population. And that's exactly what happened in South in Ethiopia in the 80s. I've seen it personally firsthand in, in Djibouti in the 90s and Haiti. It's so the the blame in my book is squarely in the lap of the fledgling government that appears to be more interested in arming themselves and maintaining this stance of aggression towards these rebel groups than of infrastructure development and protecting people. Of course, there, there's debate. I, I, there's those that disagree with that assessment. Um, the government would say, oh, no, no, we're, we have to arm ourselves to fight off these rebel groups who would seek to demoralize the people when most people just want to be left alone and hmm. allowed to farm their little plot in peace. It's it's a complex situation, and it's but it's not a Christian versus Muslim or simple one tribe versus another uh, problem. It seems extremely overwhelming. It is. About... It, I would say without the Lord Jesus in the mix, the most logical conclusion would be despair. Hmm. Uh, and people ask me, "Well, what, don't you want to do medical work there? Don't you want to uh, provide?" whatever food and these felt needs and I would say yes at the same time there's a lot of actors in the country that are trying to do those things and meanwhile people are so hungry for Jesus hmm. they really are and um, that's what I want to spend the rest of my life doing really hmm. is uh, being part of that Right now, I can't see not working part-time in order to fund myself. But also, the goal isn't to have 50 churches by 2020. The goal is to equip some leaders who can really light a fire. The goal really is a self-sustaining uh, indigenous church planting movement hmm. is what I would like to see happen. Hmm. I would like it if I could go back there in 10 years and a couple of the old guys remember me, but most everybody says, who's that? Hmm. Because they're just doing it. Hmm. Planting churches, loving people. That's good. What would you say has been the highlight um, of your time in South Sudan? Let's just... Oh, man. Well, there's been some disappointments, but also I would say highlights was 
uh, being asked to speak at a seminar in a in a village where the church is, was not yet established and they invited all the local leaders of the village and as well as uh, pastors of churches in the area and this uh, very angry looking gruff man asked a lot of pointed questions of me uh, of course through an interpreter and when it was all over with one of the Sudan, South Sudan pastors talked about baptism and saying you know this is a way of showing that you've decided to follow Jesus and be a changed person and this guy came up and asked if I would baptize him so wow I got to baptize this guy in in the in the Nile River with some other people and uh it wasn't until later that one of our core leaders, as we were headed back to another place, he said, that was amazing. That guy, he's been a, the, one of the chiefs in that village for 30 years, and everybody's afraid of him. And he beats his own mother when she displeases him. And I, all I can say is, you know, that's the power of the gospel. It wasn't me. Maybe just having an outsider come helps sometimes. But then similarly, the last time I was there, uh, we preached in another village that was all along the river where a new church is being started. And um, a guy who, by my medical assessment, probably had polio when he was a kid. His legs were shriveled and he moved by doing pushing, putting his hands on the ground and swinging himself along. His legs were curled up enough that he could swing underneath his body like like on crutches or something mm. and he wanted to be baptized so I got down on my knees in the in this shallow water and he came to the water and he said I want to I want to know Jesus wow and you know those kind of moments you just man you can't buy that that's yeah I guess another high thing high point it's there's too many you it's it's little things for me it's little things when you when you return to a place and somebody says, I've been listening to the Bible now and it's changed my whole family. Hmm. Thank you. You know, just those little thank yous that it's a it's an enormous privilege for me to get to be the the taker of those gifts that so many people have donated and prayed to in order to take. So that, that means a lot. Yeah, that's awesome. On the flip side of that, what's been your biggest struggle over there, and, and how do you feel like you've overcome that? Um, I guess it's mostly cultural. We probably don't have time for me to tell you some of my worst experiences of uh, unintended consequences. Oh, come of on. What sure we, we thought was going to be good. <laughs> let's, um, um, let's. But also. One. Okay, I'll tell one. But yeah, yeah. I would say um, there's been times. One of the problems at all, I think all missions people would tell you about, and there's books been written and I've read them, is uh, how to deal with money. Because in my view, the only way for a church planting movement to be self-sustaining, ongoing, is we have to find honorable men and women who we could hand things off to and trust them. I don't want to be part of something where it's the white people make all the decisions and control all the money. And I have had a couple of episodes where uh, money was not used well, hmm. where, you know, it's an experiment. It's always, it's an, ex don't, if you're not willing to take risks, don't go. Hmm. Um, where, 
you uh, a guy says well we're going to use this money to buy chairs or build a building and you come back and the money's gone and nothing happened um, sometimes that'll lead to a, somebody else uh, two situations I can think of in particular where the person repented and we talk and I'm still working with a couple of guys who mm. have said well you know because culturally it's just a different sense of duty and what priorities are if I say this money's for the church building that's what it's for an American says okay I get it uh, and in Africa and in other places somebody comes up and says oh my kids need their school fees and it's somebody in your circle of friends that you're not really allowed culturally to say no to and there you have that money and or somebody's mom is sick in your church what do you do so and sometimes money just disappears mm. so those are those are hard and you have to work through the way relationships work and the way money is viewed is very different uh, how time-wise are we oh we're good my well for instance with relationships in Africa it's um, for a man he has a peer group that he grew up with the guys in his age group that he went through their manhood ritual together these are his guys they are the Jonathans and Davids they're your true peers that you know for all your life most of a, a man's other relationships will be one of two things he's either the client or he's the patron if he's the patron then the client looks to you for help and you do them favors or you loan them money and you don't seek to get repaid because it's a system of the fabric of the society the client who owes the patron a debt will pay him back in a debt of gratitude of relationship of loyalty and it, it's a system we don't we you know it's that part of why it's hard for an African man to save money he either buys a cow or he has to tie it up in something like a car because if you just have cash in the bank there's so many people in your in your social web that you're culturally not allowed to say no to if you have it available and we just have to understand that this is true and it's not evil it just is huh. uh, likewise when a white guy or a, an, an American goes to Africa and you just try to form a partnership, you have to realize that you're always the patron and you're always seen as the, the wealthier guy. You don't think you're wealthy, but you show up on a plane with bags full of gifts and that seems kind of magical and you're, gonna, you're the patron. So part of becoming a brother is that they might lean on you for help in a situation you know, in our culture, if my buddy says, man, I, I got to have $1,000 by payday because of this or that, I might do it once, but I probably won't do it three times. Right. And, uh, and if he never pays me back, it's going to put a taint on our friendship. Mm -hmm. But African culture is different. Hmm. And that social web that forms is there's trust and there's loyalty. And it's hard to understand. And it's not what we would call efficient. <laughs> I think my worst experience of an unintended consequence was working with a medical mission team and we had bought all these supplies and we were going to this village that was recommended to us by a doctor who was a district medical officer. He said, yeah, this village really needs help. Why don't you go there? So we go there and there is a clinic that was 
built by outsiders. There's a clinical officer there who seemed very unhappy that we were there the whole time. And um, we saw patients for a few days. We stocked the shelves with medications and left him a bunch of medications. And it wasn't until later that I found out that this clinical officer hadn't been paid in nine or 10 months, hmm. but he, rather than abandon his post, he stayed there and about once a month he was hitchhiking into the city, buying medicines with his own money, wow. and then going back to the village where he would sell the medicines for a small price so he could live and recoup his investment. Hmm. And so when we brought three months worth of medicine and the whole village knew we were there, and it was like a big party. Basically, we just cut the legs out from under him. He's not going to get paid. All the people in the village expect the medicine to be free. Right. Because they know that the outsiders brought it. And I found out that, so here's this guy who's in a tough situation, not getting paid the way he's supposed to be paid, who's being loyal and true and hanging in there, and I just really hosed him. Hmm. And But he didn't express that to me out loud because that would have, shown shame on that would have brought shame onto him and shame onto his employers who were supposed to be paying him and he isn't going to say it Hmm. and i mean that's another big topic just talking about honor versus shame in these cultures it's it's uh it's not the way we work you know americans we look at the law as guilt and innocence and nobody's above the law but in a lot of cultures what you do is less important than who finds out and if you bring shame on your family or your group that's the sin it's the actual doing of it isn't so much seen as the sin and that's hard for us to get our heads around but you can do a pretty extensive bible study and find that that the the new testament does deal with it uh, we tend to like a lot like romans a lot because that was paul's writing to the first latin people who thought this way of that nobody's above the law not even the king Mm -hmm. but in most cultures it's not like that Hmm. and it's tough for us it's tough for americans to come in and because we don't know why they're doing stuff right Hmm. all right we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with wade huffman and he's going to share with us three tips to doing ministry well if you haven't checked out the new doingministrywell.com website, check it out. We chose Swissco to do our overhaul and are so happy with the results. Swissco makes ministry websites beautiful and hassle-free. Schedule a free consultation today at swissco.us. Hi, this is Brian Ensminger. If you enjoyed doing ministry well, we'd really appreciate it if you'd check out the Engaging Missions show, where we deliver God stories to your earbuds. You can find us at engagingmissions.com. All right, and we are back doing ministry well. Jim Baker, your host, and here with Wade Huffman. Wade, please share with us three tips to doing ministry well. Well, as we were saying before, that, that's a tough one. I, a wise mentor of mine once said, uh, "Be what he used to say is think big, be small, and don't take it personal. Hmm. And what he lived in front of me was that it's... Don't think, let people don't let other people think you're crazy if you have a big vision, but also always be willing to do the humble things uh, that are going to be required of you. And when people just don't get it, or they uh, maybe let you down, or you thought they were going to do something they don't, you just can't take it personally. You have mm-hmm. to not get bogged down in 
disappointments, but rather keep an eye on what you feel like God has set before you. Uh, which brings me to my second point is that I have a theory that I have never had an original thought. Hmm. And so when someone's vision is presented to me or I get an idea about how we could do something, I've found with the wonders of the Internet, I'll find that somebody has already thought this through, written a book, or has already hammered out at least a frequently asked questions that are already answering a lot of my concerns uh, and can help me not go down a path that, oh, well, somebody's been trying that before and it didn't help, even though it may sound good on the surface. So, but also I think that is corollary to staying humble and realizing, you know, I'm just not that smart. Uh, I want to submit myself to people in authority who I want I can submit to because of their honesty and integrity uh, who have a vision that I can say yeah I can I can help you with that or I'll try to help you with that like the pastors in South Sudan that I've been working with for several years uh, and even at our own church where our leadership has been very supportive of of this and people from the church have gone with me to South Sudan at different times um, and committed. The next thing I was had written down was the same old wise man told me once, he said, never have to buy, never have to sell. And he would say that that applies to used cars, uh, cruises, and ministry in the sense that if somebody's trying to say, oh, there's this great deal, but it'll be over at midnight, he would always say, hey, say no, <laughs> say no. Um, when a terrific opportunity comes up, yes, you need to be decisive at the same time. Sometimes the answer is, well, this may not be the season for that, or let's do some legwork and hold off on that for now. Um, I think sometimes people get caught up on the wave or they read something that's going on at another church or in another ministry and think, well, why, why can't we do that here? Well, the story in the article or the um, little bio about the guy doesn't tell you about the 10 times he did it wrong or the right. 20 years he spent doing it. And it's just, it's wise to keep moving, keep your eye on your vision and don't get in a big hurry. Hmm. Because haven't you heard this? I mean, life's a marathon, not a sprint. And in places like South Sudan, I feel like before we can harvest, we have to break up hard ground hmm. and plow and throw seed out, some of it isn't going to work, you water, you tend, not to say that as an excuse for slow progress, but at the same time, uh, you know, this is a place that has seen 60 years of war, basically. If you go next door to Kenya, there are tribes of people that are still living in very difficult circumstances at the same time. There's infrastructure and roads and relative peace for 50 years, and I can see the stark differences in how the church is doing because people have, they don't have the fear of trying something new as they might in, in southern Sudan. And then you have to be wary of the folk who see you as a sponsor hmm. rather than, oh, this is, you want me to plant the church? Yeah, yeah, I want you to do it. Hmm. Because it won't work if I do it. It, it needs to be your church. You you own it. You love it. 
and I guess the the last thing as I joke is uh, you got to always stay well hydrated and it's being a public health slash family doc uh, guy of course I'm always on to people to drink more water because you're near the equator and the sun's brighter than you think it is and it's going to suck the life right out of you. Hmm. And time and time again, on day three or so of a trip, a lot of times guys will feel really bad. Hmm. Um, and they got to spend the day resting in the shade and drinking some water. And I guess that, for me, I tell myself that, both in the literal but also in the metaphorical of, I, I'm learning as I get older that I just can't keep going if I don't wall off some time, a Sabbath, not as a legalistic thing, but as a quiet time. You've got to keep spending time with the Lord. You've got to drink from the well. And um, sometimes you have to say no to stuff that sounded good, but you realize that uh, this isn't the season for that, or, it's, or I'm not the guy hmm. for that. And sometimes it's a little uncomfortable or embarrassing, but you just can't derail or allow yourself to not have sometimes those difficult conversations you owe it to that guy and you owe it to the lord to uh, to talk things out but that's a whole nother topic hmm. um i'm excited about this next question because i know you are an avid reader um so what books have been inspiring you lately and then let's just talk about all the books that you love <laughs> oh man <laughs> Top books. Wade Huffman's top books. Oh, I should have prepared better. <laughs> I would say a book that um, has changed my life recently because it, not because it was like, oh my gosh, this guy's the best thing ever, but rather he pulled together so many aspects of my life as a middle-aged guy that I said, that's right. I've learned through bad experience. I'm an action guy, I'm a man, get it done, give me a list. Um, very much a tactical guy, not so much strategic or visionary, but I'm afraid I was finding my worth and my views of my own success in accomplishing tasks, which we all know is not correct, but it's hard to change and becoming intentionally more contemplative spending some time in quiet prayer. There's a, uh, a book by uh, Peter Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Leadership. The title sounds dry, but he has really broken down things like leading out of your marriage or out of your singleness rather than being a, a leader who happens to be married, uh, taking Sabbath, having a, a livable rhythm of life. Um, he's, he's got some good stuff. Huh. Uh, from the standpoint of a book, say, that I um, have read three times and will probably read again, uh, Jesus and Nonviolence by Walter Wink. Uh, he's a theologian who marched with Martin Luther King in Selma, Alabama in 1965. He was active in the apartheid, anti-apartheid movement in the, in the 80s and 90s in South Africa. And uh, just talking about Jesus and the third way one way being fight one way being flight I'm afraid I'm gonna be passive I'm gonna be a doormat and he says no Jesus is a third way of 
resistance when necessary, but always nonviolence. Hmm. And um, he ex he does an expose of the Sermon on the Mount and talks about some Greek verb stuff that got watered down in its translation, probably for political reasons in the 1600s. I mean, why would King James want to sponsor a scripture that said, resist your authorities, uh, but yet there it is. Anyway, that, <laughs> there's one for us who, in our politically polarized world that we live in, you know, I feel like we're less in the middle of a war of ethnicity or class as much as we're in a war of ideas of what's important, what matters. Hmm. Um, there's a little book by a guy named Phil Strout called How's Your Soul? Uh, Phil Strout is a guy who's cut his teeth as a missionary in Brazil who planted has planted churches and currently is the head or, I don't know his official title, the director, if you will, of the Association of Indian Churches in America. And How's Your Soul is him talking about how his mentor never wanted to talk about his church, never wanted to talk about his problems. He always wanted to know, no, really, how how's your soul? Is your mind and your will and your emotions centered on Christ? Are you spending enough time doing what the world would call nothing? Hmm. Uh, and it's a, it's a cool little book. It's very quick read. I, I would highly recommend I would say though the guy that's changed my heart and slapped me upside the head the most is uh, Henri Nouwen looks like Henry only French he's a Dutch priest who's died in the 90s but he wrote extensively uh, but his book on the return of the prodigal son is uh, a fantastic little book about how God views us and how we view ourselves and forgiveness that um, I've read a few times because hmm. it's good to be reminded of how much God loves us and how much he wants to reach out to us. Hmm. He has some other really great books too. There's one called The Only Necessary Thing, which is a mashup, if you will. It's a hodgepodge. One of his fans uh, who was a friend, close friend of his, pulled together from his writings and lectures uh, by topic, several different nice uh, brief things to read on different things. But the the only necessary thing comes from the Mary and Martha story in Luke, hmm. where uh, some translations say Mary has chosen the better part. But he says that uh, a very legitimate Greek translation of that phrase is, no, Mary has chosen the only necessary thing hmm. by sitting at my feet and listening. And I guess that it's that's a precious book to me because of, I guess it is gently pointed out to me areas where I'm lacking. Uh, I'm still not a monk by any means as far as the time alone with God alone, uh, in quietude, but it's something that I feel like that's where the Lord has taken me the last few years. Hmm. Those are awesome. Um, I, I know you've made a, a drastic step recently. I don't know how many, how recently this was, but you mentioned going from 50 hours down to 30 hours um, of working. What mm -hmm. was that process like, uh, and was it hard? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's, there's a lot of things that go into that, and doing that affects you in a lot of different ways, too. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, about 10 years ago, 
I was uh, president of my company, uh, our medical group, and making good money and all in, man. I was good at my job. I'm, it's it's kind of intoxicating to uh, be good at your job and get paid well, and people are telling you that you're doing a great job, and uh, to then say, well, this is really getting in the way of what I feel like God is telling me to do. You, and I think Oswald Chambers deals with this several times in his uh, My Utmost for His Highest devotionals, which actually he didn't write. They were pulled together by his wife. But anyway, uh, dealing with that sometimes you have to tell people no and, and you'll disappoint people and people will be, well, why are you doing that? And he, he says, if, man, if God is calling you, you have to just do it. Uh, I was in South Sudan in early 2007 and... The dreams were to, you know, build a bigger, better clinic. It was a very rustic place, still is. And in 2008, uh, me and another guy from our church uh, spent two months there, basically working like dogs, making bricks and blocks, and working with the South Sudanese uh, workers to build the thing. And I think it was during that two months that I realized that I uh, just needed to be doing this. And um, so I kind of planned and we looked, my wife and I looked at our finances and in 2010 I uh, wrote a letter of resignation to my group in order to say uh, I uh, won't, don't mind working here but I can't fulfill my obligations as a partner. And they had a process uh, for extricating yourself from being a partner that involved uh, two years of uh, staying on at the same pace so that a replacement could be found and some other things. So during that two years, I continued to go to South Sudan for short terms and we it finally happened in 2012, officially went part-time. And um, so now I get paid by the hour. <laughs> I work for, I, uh, and pay my own expenses, my malpractice and health insurance and all those things. We just made a decision that that's uh, what we wanted to do and uh, it's worked out well. Hmm. Uh, tried to be in South Sudan two times a year, uh, a couple times gone three, also being involved with our church locally and I don't know if I'm answering your question yet. It's. It's been, um, you know, a little scary. I think the more scary is going to be the point of no return where I realize where I get to the point where I'm just going to have to let go of my medical license and stop practicing medicine huh. and do this. And I think it's coming. I, the short, and up, short story is I'm strategizing on that <laughs> now with my wife and hopefully within the next few years we'll be doing that. That's awesome. Uh, I can say that's awesome because I don't have to make those choices. But um, yeah, I mean, what what would you say to people that feel called of God but are having a hard time making big steps of sacrifice like that? I mean, that's what you described in a sentence. You know, I, I went to hourly wages. I now, you know, those are big things. That was a big transition, like no small transition. So uh, what... You know, I heard a, a wise man say that to do the impossible 
requires two things. A vision that won't let you go and enormous sacrifice. Hmm. It's a preacher talking, so... But I have never forgotten that phrase because I don't want to build a kingdom. I want to give away the kingdom and invite people into it, um, which is part, I guess, why our my goals are somewhat intangible. I don't have a goal to drill so many wells or to build so many church buildings. And we want to spread the kingdom of God, and that's harder to measure. How do you define success? Well, we baptize people, and we see new churches coming slowly, but more than that have been preached to. So I guess I would say to people, if God has given you a vision that you just can't shake, it just won't go away, then ask him. He's the giver of wisdom. Ask Jesus, Lord, what are you doing here? Um, and ask him to let you let go of your own fears and presuppositions about what it's supposed to look like. Hmm. I can tell you that a turning point for us was um, in 2012, before uh, it was officially went part-time, there was a need, because of the change in the government in 2011, funding for the clinic that we had helped start, there was a big lag uh, because it went from being UN on this protected area to the government is supposed to help administer it. The point being that... um, I melted significant chunk of my retirement and gave it. And I can say that there was something liberating about, you hear people sometimes say, give till it hurts. And I would say, no, 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 give till it feels good. Mm. I think if you will take a risk and give of yourself, that, I don't know, it's not the first step, it's not the second step, but I think a step in freeing your your mind and your heart from the world's measuring stick of what makes you successful is to do something that's maybe irrational of saying, well, I'm just going to go ahead and do that and give that. Or, and again, it, if you heard God wrong, you might end up with some debt or something, and you deal with it, and you say, Lord, show me this time. I mean, the history's full of guys doing the impossible with very little who just kept at it, Hmm. kept at it. Um, Of course, they don't write books about the people that (laughs) didn't ever (laughs) make something that turned out. I I can tell you that if I did this very thing for another 10 years and it didn't change a lot visibly, I, I think I would still do it even just for the the people that I already know and love hmm. because I know they're telling people and when we all you know see Jesus face to face I have this fantasy of people saying hey I know you you do you remember that time you left that bible for that guy well it ended up in my hands and hmm. it changed my life it changed my family no not to be self-deluded but to realize that we're just not going to get to see it all and you occasionally get that grace, that that gift of someone who says, hey, let me tell you what happened after you guys were here. And that's, man, that's like the best thing ever. I, I can't think of a hyperbolic 
metaphor good enough for <laughs> for that and to think that what I pray is that I can continue to serve with integrity and that that for every one that I actually get to hear about I hope there's a hundred more that I don't hear about to just keep on going because you know Jesus himself says that even a cup of cold water in my name will not lose its reward not that it's the reward is the point but the fact that it matters mm. it matters that's good this has been a great interview I've enjoyed it I always enjoy chatting with you so it was fun to to record it this time but uh would you just close us out by praying for our listeners i will lord jesus thank you thank you so much for coming lord and volunteering and giving yourself to bridge that gap between us and the almighty god and the, the almighty father that we can be adopted and be brothers with you that we can be sons of the most high that we are one. Lord God, I just ask that you will help us to trust you more and realize that you are for us, that you are not against us, that you are not waiting for us to screw up, but rather you are patiently waiting for us to open our eyes and see how good you really are and to walk with you. Lord, help us to walk with you all of our days. Protect us from the schemes of the enemy, Lord. And uh, we ask that you will Grow your kingdom, Lord. Your kingdom come and your will be done in all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Wade, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, thanks for inviting me. If you've enjoyed this episode of Doing Ministry Well, you can help us out by rating, commenting, and subscribing on iTunes and sharing this podcast with your friends. Check out the podcast notes to find out more about today's guests and other resources. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions on who we should interview next, contact us at doingministrywell.com. If you'd like to find out more about me, your host, visit my blog at jimjessbaker.com. That's jimjess, as in Jessica, baker.com.